Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing great. Got Finally got great weather here in North Carolina. Might play a little, little bit of golf later on in this evening. I love this topic, again, because what, I've had this discussion before about retirement and how people don't plan on retiring fully. So a new survey has found that more than half Americans plan to keep working in retirement. Working during your golden years or partial retirement has gained popularity recent years as the cost of living has increased and savings have de- decreased. Local financial professional Alan Porter from Strategic Wealth Strategies joins us now to share more about the retirement trend and how you can avoid working during the go- your golden years. What is partial retirement, Alan? Well, partial retirement, some people uh, love to work in retirement. Like I'm, I'm 70 years old, Neil. As long as I got a healthy mind, I'll continue working till the day I die because I love what I do, love helping people. But, uh, you know, people, there's a lot of people that are working in retirement now. I think it's uh, almost doubled what it was here five years ago, up till age 75. And even working at 75, some people are uh, considering working longer. But there's many, many uh, factors that go into this. Right now, people are living paycheck to paycheck for one thing. But the problem is people are not prepared for retirement like they were 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the average savings of 401k is like $135,000. I mean, you can't retire on that. And between that, Social Security, people get out of their social, I mean, out of their 401k within probably five to seven years if they if they spend it very frugally. But, uh, you know, I read something, the uh, average balance for people in retirement is $400,000. I don't think, I don't think it's that high anymore. I think it's a whole lot less. But the other thing, Neil, one of three people in retirement are in depression for different reasons. But it's uh, it's a, there's a lot of factors that go into this. Okay. What are the benefits of a partial retirement? Oh, man, there's all kinds of. First off, waiting to take your Social Security. You can take it at 62, but if you work and for every $2 you make, $1 comes back to Social Security to make over $21,000 or something. People don't understand. Social Security increases by 8% plus the cost of living increase every year until the full age of 70. So that's quite a, that's a 56% increase. Uh, and plus the cost of living allowance. But the thing is, 83% of people in America take Social Security to their detriment, not their benefit. And people don't understand this. Uh, People are more happy. Uh, they help retirees stay more healthy, uh, physically and mentally. And, uh, you know, if you, if you delay your retirement or work in your retirement, work during your retirement, you don't have to take out as much of your, of your planned money. So it's going to last longer. Uh, but there's many things that go into a, in your retirement. And one of the biggest things, Neil, that I found people, they've been inundated by, the propaganda Wall Street puts your retirement in 401k. A 401k is outdated. It doesn't work. As back, Tom Bina, the father of the 401k, said the, the 401k is a disaster. It needs to be destroyed. It needs to be replaced with something. But many people don't understand. A 1% fee in a 401k will reduce your income by one-third over a 30-year period. The average fee in a 401k is 2.99%. And that people will have less than half of their money just because of uh, the fees that go into this. You know, fees are anywhere from half a percent to three and a half percent in some of these 401ks, especially for smaller companies. But another thing that people don't understand, and their financial planner that I found that have not told them about, are risk in retirement, such as sequence of returns risk. If you if you retire on your 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 portfolio in a 401k or any stock portfolio. And you get hit by sequence returns risk where you have losses in the first three years when you when you retire, it's going to decimate it because what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take out a larger distribution rate. And the one distribution rate people said was safe a long time, well, not a long time ago, but it was 4%. But now that's down to 2.8%. I think it's even less than that now because of, uh, of inflation. But people need to talk about different forms of retirement fixed and fixed index annuities that have no fees or very small fees. And when you have a fee and a fixed fixed index annuity, Neil, the uh, the fee pays for a benefit. 
cash value life insurance. I've got five index universal life insurance for my, for my retirement. And it's, I'm set because it's done by the insurance company and I have a guarantee. It's the same thing with fixed indexed annuities and fixed annuities. If you annuitize your contract, let's say it's 72 and it says you're going to get $40,000 a year. I don't care if that account balance goes to zero, you're still getting $40,000 a year for the rest of your life. And in some cases, with some of these fixed indexed annuities I set up, Neil, they can increase because they have an indexing strategy that goes up. You never, you never lose money to a market because we're not tied to the market. But you'll have a, uh, um, an indexing strategy that will grow. And every time that indexing strategy shows a growth, you're going to get an increase in your income. So you can you know, offset inflation. Another thing people don't understand, and I've said this before, you've got a million dollars in a stock portfolio. You'd only have to have approximately six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, this is age. This is at age sixty-five. Approximately six hundred and fifty thousand dollars of that stock portfolio to give you the same four percent distribution rate. That same forty thousand dollars that you would have in a million-dollar uh, stock portfolio. You'd only need six hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the same, and that's guaranteed with a fixed indexed annuity. It's not guaranteed with a uh, stock portfolio. So that leaves you three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to take out some more risk in retirement, pay the taxes and turn it into a Roth IRA. That way, you know, taxes, they, they've said, uh, the government said, Congressional Budget Office report last fall stated that if taxes aren't raised overall by, by 2030, 66%, we can't even afford the interest on the debt. And that was at $31 trillion. Now it's $32.5 trillion. So what do you think they're gonna do? They're gonna raise taxes. But the other thing, too, is that's going to leave you even more money to do whatever you want to with. Uh, take a trip, uh, you know, buy a new, uh, you know, take whatever you want to do. Uh, but people are just, they're inundated by propaganda Wall Street. Oh, a stock and bond portfolio is the only way to go. The other thing in retirement, Neil, when, you, when you're in a stock and bond portfolio, you've got stress. It's already been proven that people with guaranteed income, this is a Harvard study, it's already been proven. If you have guaranteed income retirement besides Social Security, such as cash value life insurance or fixed and fixed indexed annuities, you leave a more healthy, less stressful, happier, and longer life. And that's proven not, not only by Harvard, but other companies. What are the benefits of a partial retirement? Well, you know, the benefits are, you know, like I've said, we, uh, we can work and not take as much money out of the, uh, out of our portfolio. Um, you socialize more in retirement. Uh, there's just different things. It, it improves your mind. Uh, but there's, you know, if you're, if you, especially if you enjoy your work. But if you don't enjoy your, boy, enjoy your work, you got to do something to, to out, offset these problems. But people just don't understand about, you know, the risk in retirement. The number one risk in retirement, Neil, is running out of money before you run out of life. And people are not prepared for that. And they don't know what to do. And what, what this retirement thing is, what I try to teach people, you need to start making a plan in your 20s. Not, not, I've got people that are 55, 60 years old. Well, I'm getting ready to retire in a few years. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What, what, what you should have done a long, long time ago. And, you know, a lot of them got, well, I got my 401k. I said, well, good luck on that because it's just not going to work, especially with rising taxes. Between rising taxes and fees, the 401k is going to be decimated. People need to learn about having financial strategies to reduce and possibly eliminate both debt and taxes and allowing them to live a tax-free retirement. And that's one of the things I do. I show people how to reduce debt, possibly eliminate debt completely, and reduce or eliminate taxes. And what, just think about this. You go into retirement, your house is paid for, uh, you don't have any debt whatsoever, then I show people how they can take make their house work for them. They worked their entire life to pay for that house, but how can that house work for me now? I show them how to set up what they call an HECM, Home Equity Conversion Mortgage, which will give them another flow of tax-free cash that they can use for anything they want, or they can just let it grow. But uh, a lot of people don't want to do that because, well, I don't want a mortgage on my house. It's not a mortgage. It's a line of credit. It is a type of a mortgage. But that line of credit, you're arbitraging money in there and you're growing your money tax-free, especially if your house is uh, paid for. But there's many things that people 
need to understand. They need to win, to find out when the proper time to claim Social Security. They need to understand about health care costs. I mean, long-term care, between fifty dollars to $200,000 a year for long-term care right now. And 70% of people in America are going into long-term care at some point in their life. And that's one of the things with cash value life insurance. You know, you've got a death benefit that you paid pennies on the dollar to get for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in death benefit. And you can use that death benefit to pay for long-term care completely tax-free. And I know this for a fact because my, when my daughter-in-law died at 39 of pancreatic cancer, my son was 100% disabled. And he was not getting his disability till the summer, that summer we went down there in 2010. But uh, January 5th, she called me. And I was like 99% of people out there that thought life insurance was a death product. Well, I found out it's, it's, not the only, it's not only a death product, but it's a living product. It's a once product. It's a needs product. The only product that will protect you if you live too long, die too soon, or get sick. And she had a terminal illness rider on her life insurance policy that let her access the death benefit, which was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, tax-free. And if it had not been for that, Neil, my son would be bankrupt. And it took a huge financial strain off of me. What should retirees consider before entering into a partial retirement? Well, things like their Social Security. How much are you going to get? Uh, if they do if they do work, how much are they going to have to pay back Social Security if they took Social Security early at 62? Uh, again, health care costs. And again, tax increases. But I think I, I can, you know, you can, you can get rid of a lot of risk in retirement. There's like 18 different risks. You can get rid of market risk for one. You can get rid of the number one fear in retirement is living too long and running out of money. Uh, longevity risk, withdrawal rate risk. I mean, the list goes on and on. But you've got to plan. Everything that you do in your life, you've got to plan for. And people, you know, they just don't plan. And, and if they have a plan, they don't make enough of a, enough of a commitment to that. They, they spend more time planning their summer vacation than they do the retirement. And that's a fact. How can we feel more financially secure and avoid working in retirement? Well, one of the things is having a diversified portfolio. When I say diversified, I'm not talking about diver diversification in the stock market. You need to have a diversified portfolio in your 401k, your, your uh, IRA, stock portfolio is fine. That 60-40 stock split that they, I mean, that they try to push out everybody's throat for retirement doesn't work. It hadn't worked in years. Uh, you've got to have uh, different ways for saving for retirement and use a wide range of saving vehicles, especially with Roths and turning your annuities into Roths, Roth IRAs, because there's no taxation of Social Security or the means testing Medicare Part B which will be in the thousands per year. And you're not going to have a CPA or a financial advisor tell you about that. But that's the same thing with cash value life insurance. It doesn't affect taxation of Social Security or the means testing for Medicare Part B. And it's protected from lawsuits, liens, and judgments. You can become your own bank. Borrowing from yourself. You want to buy a new car in retirement? Borrow from yourself and then pay yourself back. Compound interest for you and not the financial institutions. And that's just some of the things that, that insurance products can do for people that a stock portfolio can't even come close to. A stock portfolio is full risk, especially market risk. All right. So the best place people can go to contact you today is email you at strategicwealthnumberzero at gmail.com or call you at 910-551-1046. This is just a really, really important thing for people to consider because you got to be prepared for retirement regardless of your age, not just the ones that are just thinking of retiring. Well, Neil, you're absolutely right. I, I tell you, people, uh, they just don't understand. And uh, they just got to plan. They got to plan. And that's, I try to tell people that. Exactly. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Alan. Great show. All right. That was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. Guys, take care. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and I'm excited about my guest. She is the co-founder of Fabulingua, Leslie Omana Berger. Leslie, thanks for stopping by. And, you know, I started thinking about this. You know, I have six kiddos myself, and to think about specifically enough all the different activities, all the things, why language learning? It's just, I don't feel like I have the time, so why should you learn a second language? Well, I mean, it's a 
it's a pretty big one. You know, humans, we are fundamentally linguistic, right? So we only have access to the world through language. And that's unique to humans. There's no other animal that has a com complex language structures that we have. And because of that, how each one of us experiences the world is innately tied to the language that we speak. So if we only have one language, we can only see the world through that lens of that what that one language makes available to us. And so therefore, we really only have that one perspective on the world. And as we acquire new languages, we acquire an entirely new perspective on the world and new access to how we're able to experience it. A friend of mine was recently telling me um, that actually he's learned three languages. And each time that he's learned a language, it's given him a profound insight into that culture. And that when he learned Italian, he realized that there was a beauty to that culture that was unlike anything he'd experienced in English in the US but he had to learn Italian to really experience that viscerally. So there's ample scientific research that shows that learning a second language not only makes your children smarter, smarter and more able to focus and pay attention, it actually makes kids able to understand multiple perspectives. It makes them more open-minded, empathetic and culturally aware. And I think that we can all agree that as our world becomes more globalized with more substantial problems to solve, these are all traits that we desperately need to cultivate cu cultivate in upcoming generations around the world. So I think Fabulingua's mission to make learning a second language more fun and more accessible to children around the world can produce some really powerful effects for upcoming generations. And what we've talked about on the show multiple times is it, 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 the parents can kind of allow the learning to come to the kid. It's not the situation where they're going to have to be constantly on top of them, right? So that's absolutely, the <laughs> absolutely. That's the beauty of truly turning something into a mobile game, right? Mobile games are designed to capture kids' attention. So the kids learn it independently. Kids, don't, parents don't need to speak that second language. So even though they might not speak that second language, they can give that gift to their children so that all the powerful effects of learning a second language is something their kids just get given as part of the process. And given as part of that process. And there's so much research you talked about with learning a second language that's just not out there about how they interact, how they do better in school, how they perform. So explain some of that research that's out there. It's just, it's huge, right? I mean, it, it's it's huge. I mean, the, the there's, there's basically, I kind of divide it up into two sides. The benefits to the children's brains is very well studied. Uh, it literally creates more gray and white matter, like higher brain density. So they are more, their brains are more connected. They are smarter. The, the, the outcomes, academic outcomes are better. Um, it um, makes them more capable of seeing different perspectives. Literally, there's tons of experiments that they've done where they test the perspectives that children are able to understand that are different from their own. And kids with a second language are able to see other people's perspectives that they're not sitting in. So it makes them more open-minded to these different perspectives. And, and that is the fun of seeing other people's perspective, perspectives as the fundamentals of empathy. Uh, and there's research to show that it increases their empathy levels. So there's a ton on the, on the brain side uh, in terms of what it has uh, the effect on the brain, but also, also the cultural awareness, the open-mindedness. Um, that's another huge part and the ability to, to see the perspectives of different cultures is is huge um, and and very important in our in our globalized world, right? Totally, it's it's, it's something that if you don't get, learn it, you're going to be missed out. And I think the futurist part also, Leslie, has to be answered, right? More and more that we're becoming a global connectedness, that more and more people are going to need to know a second language because of how more and more the future of work and where we're going with Web 3.0 and all these different technologies, you're going to have to know multiple languages because more and more people are going to be working with people all over the world, not just in the United States. 
Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you, but I work with people from all over the world. And I think most people do now, um, you know, uh, just have to manage your time zones and to have the perspective that allows you to not just linguistically communicate, but to have a capability of understanding, oh, this person's from a different culture, they might see things differently. And so, you know, I'm going to explain it this way or that way, that that mental flexibility is really important, as we work from with people from cultures all over the world. And as a world, we're going to need that. And as a parent, preparing your child for that world, that mental flexibility that comes with them learning a second language. And by the way, they don't need to be fluent in that second language in order for them to get all those benefits of learning a second language. That increased empathy, that increased um, intelligence, all of that happens as you're learning the second language. You don't have to, it, it doesn't just come once, you're, once you've perfected it. So that's the really cool thing, I think. And Fabiolingua is not just it's a memorization flashcards that we're all used to learning languages or learning, you know, the beginning speech. You re they really are going to be able to have a conversive conversation with a native Spanish speaker and really build a relationship like you're teaching this language acquisition and communication with another person where it's not just like just rote memorization. They're going to be really actually able to communicate, build a rapport and develop a relationship with that person. Right. Absolutely. We we to, we teach through what's called acquisition driven instruction, which means that that we are teaching you so that you acquire the language, which is something that happens subconsciously as you're exposed to the right kinds of language in the right way, um, as opposed to drilling and memorizing that. Drilling and memorizing may be able to help you with a test, but what it doesn't help you is getting your words out when you're speaking to somebody. You need to have acquired a language if you're actually going to have a communicative relationship with other people where you're communicating. Um, so you need to, to learn through an acquisition-driven instruction, which is not typically how things are shown that are taught in school, unless your teacher happens to be part of the minority of teachers who teaches that way. So um, it's very important to make sure that your kid is acquiring a language so that they'll be able to communicate in the language, right? That's the purpose. The purpose isn't to just to get good grades on a test and then forget the language. What's the purpose of that? That's like a pointless exercise, right? The biggest uh, why you have is why you created it, which we've talked about on multiple shows. But the reason you created Fabulingua is because of how you helped your kids. So explain that, how you learned how to teach them that and how they're able to utilize that in their daily lives now. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I created Fabulingo because I was frustrated that there was nothing out there that was um, more substantial and was going to actually help them communicate than your kind of drill and kill type of apps that existed at the time. Um, so I knew that memorizing lists of words is not learning a language. I wanted them to be able to communicate in language, to speak freely, uh, to make themselves understood. Um, so I really understood that I needed to develop a new, that there was nothing out there for kids that would do that. There was no technology out there. So I developed it, um, uh, got a patent on our process. And, and the really interesting thing I'll tell you now is that now that they're older and they've, they learned through this acquisition driven instruction through comprehensible input, as it's known in sort of the geeky world, um, their ability to speak is very fluent, very spontaneous. It doesn't mean that they don't occasionally make errors, but you know what? They kind of pick right up where they were and they make themselves understood. But interestingly enough, um, my son actually just uh, finished his Spanish AP. He's a sophomore in school and um, he got a five. A couple of his other classmates got a five. And it, I found it really interesting that all of the kids who got fives, these three kids, were kids that had been raised speaking Spanish with this kind of like immersive, comprehensible input sort of approach. And all the other kids who were really, really smart and got fives in other AP exams, they couldn't drill their way into getting a five in the AP, right? Even in, in, in high level tests down the road, you need to have acquired the language you can't memorize your way into fluency and proficiency. You can only acquire your way into it. And therefore, the instruction you need to have is acquisition-driven instruction, which is exactly what Fabulingua is based on. See, that's so, a powerful point that we've not talked about in that. Yeah, I mean, come yeah. on now. See, the, the, your kids are the, way, the future of what 
Fabulingo was going to create with so many great learners and then adding the gaming component because you taught them language acquisition through your, your patent now add the gaming part and mobile gaming. And that's the biggest why is it's fun, right? At yeah. the end of the day, it's fun. We've just had a, a bunch of homeschoolers test, uh, test the app. And, and you know what? They all universally say the same thing. They're like, their kids couldn't wait to play it again. And it's like, well, that's, that's it. You know, if, if kids are engaged um, and they're re receiving the right kind of input, the language input, they will learn. That's that's our, how our brains, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, our brains are wired to learn languages so long as they're, we get the right kind of input. So uh -huh. we just need to give them that input and then kind of get out of the way. All right. So the best place to go is fabulingua.com, learn information, or just go to the App Store or Google Pay, play and download Fabulingua today, right? That's right. That's right. Um, I actually wanted to share one more story on the, on, 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 uh, which I think was actually kind of also really interesting. So this summer, um, I took my daughter who is uh, just finished seventh grade. And um, she went when she went into public middle school, she started straight in, in Spanish too, because she spoke Spanish and they didn't have any other higher levels. So she started in Spanish too. But because I've been teaching her through this acquisition driven instruction, she didn't know how to officially conjugate verbs. And she didn't know how to you know, what the pluperfect was or any of the names of these conjugations, she kind of just knew how to use them, right, instinctively. And um, her teacher was kind of, it was really hard with that transition into like this grammar-oriented class. But, you know, she got the hang of it and um, she eventually actually did really well and, and um, actually ended up kind of being one of the better kids in class and, and got a really good grade. But it was, it was a hard transition, right? Um, and for a while there, you know, she started feeling like maybe I'm not good at Spanish because I don't know the names of these tenses and I don't know how to conjugate them perfectly. And I would sit there and tell her, you know, Spanish, you know how to speak Spanish really well, not perfectly, but you're really good at it. Don't let these tests that you're getting for Spanish two class, like dissuade you of that. And she didn't quite believe me because kids just don't always believe their parents. And then she had this funny experience this summer. So this summer we go to Mexico, um, and uh, I signed her up for a school, like a one month at a, at a, at a school, a, a local school in this town. And they, it was all in Spanish and they had an English class and they teach English much the same way as most traditional classes are taught in, uh, most Spanish classes, foreign language classes are taught in the States, which is all these memorize memorization, conjugating of verbs. And then, you know, the test is conjugate this verb in the pluperfect and blah, blah, blah. And the kids sit down and write it out and then they get great results in the tests. My daughter ended up getting one of the worst scores in the class because she didn't know what the pluperfect in English was, but she's a fluent native speaker and a really good writer. And I just said to her, see how absurd it is that if you were to go by that English class score, you would consider yourself really bad at English. And you are by far, because you're a native English speaker, the best in the class. But this test is what's wrong. It's not your capacity to speak English, because you've been raised in a way that, you know, English is, a, is, is your native tongue, right? You don't, you don't need to know all the names of the verbs. You don't need to memorize in order to speak a language well she's acquired English and she's therefore fluent. Uh, and so that's the idea with that, with acquisition driven instruction is that you don't focus on the grammar. You don't focus on the memorization. You focus on subconsciously naturally acquiring it so that it comes out um, spontaneously and naturally. All right. That was fantastic. Again, fabulingua.com. Appreciate it, Leslie. And thanks for stopping by. Thanks. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome to the program first my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series and seniors that and CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? And who's our guest today? I'm doing great. Uh, our guest today is is Robert Wills, and he is not only a science fiction fantasy writer, but he's also a, a real life uh, inventor. <laughs> so he he's done a lot of things. So can so can you tell us about uh, start start out with your books? Ah well, uh, I uh, I have a couple of different genres I'm writing. I have uh, a fantasy series. It's uh, about a couple of gnomes who sell used magic wands. Uh, the idea came around for my daughter who wanted a 
Harry Potter themed uh, party for her birthday. And I had made little wands for, um, for her party papers for all the kids. And from there, my friend said he, he liked them and I should probably sell them online. So I started to, and to make the experience a little more entertaining, I uh, decided my wand shop would be run by these two gnomes. And after doing it for a couple of years, I, uh, I thought I'd write a story about how these two gnomes got to open the wand shop that they have, secondhand sorcery, because they're used wands. You're buying, you know, there's a big market for used wands out there, and that, that's, that's what they sell. And it's their adventures that they have um, running a, a wand shop and dealing with uh, the craziness going on in the world around them. Why did you choose that genre? Uh, it was uh, it was my it was my daughter. Um, she uh, she wanted a Harry Potter thing, a Harry Potter themed um, party. And when I when I was selling my wands, uh, since they were used, I would I would include like a five or six hundred word uh, origin story with each of the wands. So after a couple of years, I had a stack of these stories, and I was going to put them together like uh, all creatures great and small, you know, little vignettes. And they really didn't gel well together there because they're from all over uh, the, the wand stories were. So it just worked better to write an origin story on the uh, the two gnomes. And and that's it. It's really kind of just uh, continued from there. I'm working on book seven in the, that gnome series right now. It's about halfway wow. done. <laughs> halfway done. You mean there'll be 14? <laughs> What's that? There'll be 14 novels when you're done? Uh, that's, it, I think so. Yeah. Oh, great. Wow. That's quite a project. <laughs> well, are you working on anything else? I am. I have a, well, I had a science fiction series that I, that I, I wrote as well. Um, I was, it's, it's funny. I was living in Stuttgart, Germany. I was in the army and we were, um, helping out with children's church one day, first and second graders. And it's, so it's really kind of watered down for you know little kids. And it was the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And the basic, the basic story is lying is bad. You shouldn't lie. And I don't lie. And so I'm handing out my little coloring sheets of Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a little snake in the tree. And, and I thought, what if Eve would have said no, what kind of story would that make? And it really, and I thought, well, that really doesn't work because there's be no conflict and without conflict, you can't have a plot move along. So I thought maybe if I had it on another planet and an alien Adam and Eve turned down Satan, well, that planet can be peaceful. And of course, you know, you always got humans uh, trying to colonize planets and that could be the the uh, the action that goes on. And and um, so that's how that series uh, started. And actually, it's funny with the gnomes, uh, it, it happens sequentially in my head. So I write it chronological as it goes. This one, I wrote the last chapter first uh, where Nick Hauser, the head of con the contingent is on Arcturus and he's dealing with the uh, he's the high priest and the mayor of the town where he's landed. And these three uh, people are having a very heated argument in front of this big roaring fire. And uh, so I wrote this last chapter and it has kind of a pal sort of Planet of the Apes kind of original ending to it. And then I thought, well, how do I get these three people to this part? So then I backed up and I wrote the, the story of Nick, you know, leaving Earth and he's dealing with terrorists who don't want colonization to happen. So he's dealing with them. And then the story bounces between him and Arturus where they've discovered they've got brothers from a bar coming to visit. And uh, first they're a little, they're excited about it, then a little bit of trepidation, um, but you know, God's on their side, so it's gonna work out well. And uh, so I wrote this one story. And by that time I'd retired, I was back in the States and I went to a writer's convention and there was a Christian publisher there. And I thought, ooh, hey, this is inspirational science fiction. I mean, it's kind of a niche, um, I'll pitch it. So I pitched her the story. And she said, oh, that's great. I love it. Uh, I love the characters. Great original story. Um, you just have the one book. You don't have a trilogy. And I said, no, I just wrote the one book. And she said, you know, we like selling one book. We like selling three books better. So if you can write two more <laughs> books in the series, you know, then we'd be interested. And I thought, well, OK. So it took me about a year. It took me a year to write the other two books and get them where I wanted. And then when I contacted the publishing company, she was no longer with them. And the gentleman who got got who I got on the phone said, "We're not taking submissions from that right now." Thanks anyway. I was like, "Well, Christ!" So, so I have Great. these three stories of this trilogy. So I just self-published it, um, and it's called "The Prodigals" um, on Amazon. So I have a Kindle and an ebook, and then I did it as a. It's done as a, an audio book, 
and I actually got an actual professional to do it. So it's not my voice you're having to listen to, to, you know, three books. That would be horrible. So I got an actual uh, professional to do the uh, audio book on that. So that one, that one was, that was a lot of fun to write. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing that and that it has an ending. So, you know, it's kind of just a nice complete story, you know, start to finish. So I really, really thought so you have, uh, What's your plan? So you're going to have to write, for, for how many books are you going to write now? How many you have left? A lot. Well, I have, a, it's funny. I've got a whole bunch started right now. Um, I have a, I've got a couple others. I've written some alternative history books. Um, kind of got started on that alternative history from, uh, you know, re retired to Florida and we're at we're at uh, magic we're at uh, disney at the hollywood studios and we're riding the the great movie ride and it's not there anymore and the ride would move through these iconic scenes from movies you know you're in casablanca you know on the nostromo and aliens and then you would be uh, in the wizard of oz and that's where we were where the the wicked witch uh, gives dorothy dorothy a hard time and she disappears in a puff of smoke well then we're supposed to move on but the ride has a slowdown so which means people further up are having trouble getting off the ride and it slows down all the cars. So we're kind of hanging out there listening to the Munchkins sing. And I happen to look down and see that the only reason there's a yellow brick road is because there's a red brick road that spirals off in another direction. And I thought, you know, Disney's good about attention to detail. They, they're not making that stuff up. So I watched the movie and later on that week, and sure enough, there is, there's a red brick road that just runs off into, into Munchkin land in another direction. And I thought, oh, I wonder where that goes. So I wrote a story about Honus. He's a, a, a Kansas a newsie who gets whisked off about a week before Dorothy. And he uh, en ends up getting the help of a talking rooster and a lollipop guild uh, shop steward uh, are helping him out trying to get home. And uh, and that one was fun because I got, I love movie. Uh, I got to answer those questions that always bug me in the movie. Like Dorothy shows up, supposedly good witch Glenda, lies to Dorothy like this three times right in a row within the first 10 minutes about, you know, what the red, what the ruby slippers will do and what they can't do. And I thought, that's, that's, you know, that's not really nice. And then none of the munchkins go along with her. And you think they would because, you know, they, they seem very friendly. And they send her to the wizard who is supposed to be nice and benevolent. And the first thing he does is he puts a hit out on the Wicked Witch of the West from this poor little Kansas girl. I mean, that's not really nice either. So, oh my gosh, right. you have a lot. We well, have a lot of books going, Robert. Where can people find all that? All uh, they're on. Uh, I have them on Amazon on my author page. I, I write under under my name, Robert P. Wills. Um, it's also on, on my website. Um, since I, I'm an inventor and I've got a couple, uh, three patents, one pending right now. Uh, Six Toes Innovations is the name of the company. Uh, because the one gnome is named Grimaldung Six Toes. So I thought that was a good name for a company to stick in your head, Six Toes Innovations, uh, com, And that and my books are listed there and my inventions are there and Great. pictures of my dog. He's out there sleeping quietly, which is nice. Hopefully he continues to do that. So, All right, Robert, we appreciate Great. you coming on. A lot of information, man. Thanks again for stopping by. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley Show, and I'm first excited to welcome my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series and also CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? And I know you're excited about our guest. I'm great. Yeah, absolutely. We have Joe Gober today. He's a, not only an author, but he's also a podcaster as well, and I, I've been on his show there. So You did great. Uh, all, all good stuff, and we're now we're now it's, now it's uh, Joe's in the spotlight, and he, it's his turn to talk. <laughs> hey, Joe, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about Joe, specifically writing and then podcasting. First, writing. How did you write books? Yeah. One writing of the was, yeah. Writing was the uh, end of the career thing to do. I'd worked in market research. I worked at the agency, CIA. I worked at Motorola for 16 plus years. I worked as a political consultant for political campaigns overseas. I'm part-time. I'm an adjunct professor teaching. And now... I time to write. So I start actually writing right around uh, year 1989. The week I was done with my first novel was the week of 9-11. And my book was about terrorism in Libya. So I, back in the old days, you wrote letters and mailed things. I ripped them open, wrote a new cover letter saying, hey, if not now, when? Sent them out, got some nice comments, but everybody was terror scared at that very moment, which ended up being wrong because all those books took off during the 2000s. And I then I sat on it for a long time. And then in 2014, I decided to put it out, updated it. And then I have completing my new series, my 
third book in my new series and I'm going to go on to the next stuff. So it's just something, it's always, I've always wanted to do it. And I have been doing it, finally got Great. it out. Sounds, sounds exciting. Now you, you were associated with the CIA <clears throat> and? Yeah, and, I went in the And agency. Motorola? And Motorola. It was, they were back to back because uh, agency 8593 and Motorola had the best intelligence organization for a corporation. In fact, it was first. Um, and so if you could go anywhere as a, with an intelligence background, Motorola was the place to go. I didn't have the business background, but I went there, learned the business and then went to corporate. The person who ran corporate intelligence at Motorola was always a former CIA officer. I was the last before corporate sort of uh, dissolved into the different pieces of Motorola. All right, let's kind of talk about specifically enough the book. Tell us about your books, the books you've written. Okay, first book, uh, Secret Wars, is almost autobiographical. It's a Libya propaganda operations, 1986, the bombing of Tripoli, uh, LaBelle disco bombing. Uh, very, very close to real truth. It was it, uh, 80% of it. Uh, although it all made it through CIA pre-publications review, like all my books have to. Uh, then I wanted to write a sequel. My writer friends said, don't write a sequel, write a contemporary book, because this was set in 86. So I wrote a started writing a book called the Spy Devil series. It's about a, a group of, like everybody, a group of expert covert action people who are sort of off, off the books, but not black. They're, they're more kind of like Mission Impossible meets John Wick meets, I don't know, the Avengers. And uh, they do things, and they're sort of a family-oriented and it's a, an arc of China always sort of being my main adversary in in the book. And the third one's coming out on November 14th, uh, Devil's Own Day, which is a Civil War phrase. And um, that should complete the arc, although I'm leaving it open just in case I want to write a fourth one down the road. Um, maybe some novellas or things, but um, it is in my mind the end of the end of the road right now. I want to, I want to do other things. I want to get out of, this, get out of espionage. Go, ahead, Paul. Any questions? No, go. go ahead. Go ahead. No, so so how why how the podcast start? Podcast like this, I was uh, asked to be on a podcast. Some of my writer friends were on uh, Al Warren's uh, House of Mystery uh, podcast on NBC Radio. I was a guest, and then Al just sent me Al Warren, who writes true, true crime. He's actually he's on documentaries. You see him. Uh, he just sent me a note saying, "Hey, what do you do during the day?" And I'm like, "Well, I teach, and that's about it." And write. And he brought me in to be the guest host for people who write espionage and thriller books like Paul. So um, it gives me a chance to talk to Don Winslow and Greg Hurwitz and you know, Don Bentley, all the names of people who are now writing all the, all the, the big uh, espionage thriller books. And I know them through emails and met them at a conference or two, but talking to them for an hour uh, really is a different uh, aspect, as you know. You can get dive deep, you know, get to know the people. We like to ask questions, not like, what's your writing process? Although it usually comes up. It's who are you? you know, basically, what do you do? What makes you think about writing? What's the themes? We try to get people to say things that aren't just the usual cliche answers to, you know, do you get up in the morning? Do you have a certain time that you want to write? You know, okay, great. Um, but you can ask process, you know, do you do you write at home? Do you what how do you how do you do it? And it gives a a flavor of who they are and that and usually there's one or one a, a week next week i actually have off um but you know when i get a chance to talk to don winslow jump on it or paul paul jump on it right you know i always learn something i i, I have a folder full of notes of when i talk to these authors i'm learning i'm writing and i try to promote it and i say i learned i i, I said the same thing for paul i learned uh, from their expertise and their processes or their comments, things I can swipe. Oh, I mean, uh, things I can uh, use to my own advantage. Um, and it helps. If it helps me, I'm hoping it helps other people. That's totally what it sounds like to me. It's the, it's that whole process, isn't it? Yeah. Now, well, go ahead. No, I, you, you keep going. The process of just basically learning from, you love writing and you want to learn from these other authors you're interviewing and how to become better. Right. And some people are students of getting better. They write, read all the books and they go to all the conferences and they connect. I'm not quite as good a networker as I had to be back in the day. Um, the, the podcast helps and I have email connections and points of, of focus to get to these other people, but I'm not, you always got to be learning. All right. And at some point 
I really like to learn. I really like to read. But if you're doing that, sometimes you got to write. So um, like I'm working on a different kind of book right now, not espionage. And I'm just got a book in the mail. I got to read. I got to learn, read other books that are in a, sort of a genre I have not fully writ, written in yet. So that's how I'll learn. And maybe I'll call up the authors or send them an email. Hey, I loved your book. Can I get a moment of your time? If you don't ask, you're never going to find out. So you know, you do that. They can only say no. And they're not just being rude. There's, these are busy people. They definitely seem like it in the busy people, you get to learn that process and learn specific things. And it's always about learning. What is your goal as an author? What do you want to, what's the ultimate goal you want to accomplish as an author? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be fully honest with you. My ultimate goal was to leave something behind. So my grandkids have something to read from grandpa or my great grandkids had something to read on the shelf saying that's great grandpa's books. Um, so something to be remembered by. All right. And so that was, that was my deep, mental, psychological reason why I really wanted to write was to leave something for my family and my kids to, to, read, to know know who I was, not to be forgotten. On the on the contemporary still alive side, um, I wanted, I had stories to tell early on, especially for my agency stuff. And every author wants to entertain. Paul said it a hundred times. We want to entertain our readers. And maybe you have a thematic underneath it. I try to have a thematic, even in my you know, trite little espionage books. Is it relationships? Is it family? Is it emo controlling your emotions? Something underneath that if you want to think deep, you can, but if you don't, you're still entertained. Um, and, I'm, and I do have in my mind, my great American novel, I did ask you this question. Now, is there, do you have to kill a mockingbird, you know, tooling around in your head, your version? And I do, I want to get good enough at writing where I can try to write something that is, um, I don't say deeper or better, more literary, I guess. All right. Best place people can find information on you, in you. where can they go? JoeGoldbergBooks.com. All right. We appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for stopping by. All right. Thank you. This All is right, fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of The Hollow Man series and CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? And I know you're excited about our guest. I'm good. And and yes, we are very excited to have Natasha Murray on, on our show today. And uh, she's she is a, a wonderful writer, so she's going to tell us all about how she does this. Oh, yeah. Hi, lovely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so I, I'm an author from the UK. Um, I live um, on the South Coast, which is uh, quite near Brighton in Littlehampton. So I love ah. near Brighton. And I've been writing for over 10 years. I've got 12 books published, all in various genres. And... Um, yeah, writing now, but um, I'm I'm on a quest at the moment. I'm traveling the world looking for the perfect place to set up um, an independent bookshop and um, tea shop. So, yeah, so I'm traveling. Yeah. Very good. Right. So, Natasha, tell us about how you, why you decided to become an author. So, um, back in 2011, my son was having difficulty finding books that he liked to read. Um, he, he just finished Captain Underpants, and that was it. He, he, he said, I need stories that I can believe in. So I thought, I, I've always liked writing as a child, I, but I wrote stories to escape, <laughs> you know, a difficult childhood. So my son, I thought, I can write you a story. So I wrote him um, the like a, a dystopian adventure story set in the future and that's for 3004 um, about two um, boys that are abandoned in the wilderness and they have to find their way back to London um, with you know like trying to escape scary wasters that have been thrown out of London and it's a sort of fight of survival um, um, so he did read it he was 10 when I started writing it. <laughs> when I finished writing it, he was 18. <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, he, he liked it, but um, he's never really, he, he likes autobiographies and, and how to do books, you know, so he, he never really got into fiction. But, but that sort of set, set me off in, on a journey. And um, I, I sort of thought I'll, I'll write books for adults. So I sort of started on... Um, suburban fantasies set in the local area where I live. 
Um, there's a hill quite near me called the Chanctonbury Ring, and this hill was um, built by the devil. And it's, they say, if you go there, walk around the trees at the top seven times, he'll grant you your dearest wish. So I um, published a book called Chanctonbury, and it's about six people that go up there and have their dearest wishes granted. Although they don't meet the devil to start with, they actually, um, he, he's playing with them, basically. And yeah, so they have, you know, like um, quite a lot to deal with. Um, and they have a chance to um, fight their inner demons and um, go back in their past and sort problems out from the past. So, yeah, so I, I did that. And then I did children's books because I, I'm an illustrator as well. So I, I just do all my own illustrations. And um, then I realised how hard it is to get yourself known as a writer um, and sell books because um, you, as well as being an author, you have to learn how to be a, um, a, a marketeer, basically, and a business person. So that's a steep learning curve, but you get there eventually. And um, I, I do help other authors now with my author assist business, and I help them to edit. I do book covers, because I, I'm quite good at that, <laughs> and um, um, help them realise their dreams. But you have to be realistic. It's a very crowded market. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's, that's me, really. <laughs> the writing, publishing, editing. And now, I to help independent authors, I'd love to open a bookshop somewhere in the world. So locally, we've got quite a few bookshops, but I just... I like to travel and, and experience different different places. So I've been to Africa, I've been to Canada, and now I'm in Minnesota in the US. <laughs> All right. Go, Paul. Uh, I was just saying, have you, have you found any interesting places to open that bookshop? I, I'm looking for busy places, but not too, too busy like a city, but sort of in between. So I've been to Brainerd, um, Staples, I'm in Staples. I'm tempted. I, I even think maybe I need to open like a mobile bookshop and travel to different towns and states with it. So that, oh, that, that's, that's quite cool. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm just <laughs> following my heart and seeing where the wind blows me. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So and and you were um you you are on the south coast of of uh, England. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I I actually spent a lot of time on the on the southeast side with uh, in Dover and uh, um and uh, um with, uh, Brighton. So uh, a lot of a lot of time in Brighton, but yeah. uh, lived lived in London for a long time, many years. But um. Anyways, yeah, it's exciting to hear hear you to to speak about the, the things that you're doing. So. Yeah, I just I'm on an adventure, <laughs> and it, it just came to me like in a dream. I do dream. Do, do you when you write have dreams and turn them into books? Well, I I do the same really. So, um, but I dreamt that I was in a bookshop ser serving English tea in fine bone china to people that were hungry to read, and that I thought that sounds like fun. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great so, idea. Great yeah, idea. Yeah. I, I've I've been like um dreaming that, that I'm in Vancouver. So that might that's gonna be my next stop. So in the middle ah, of August, okay. I'm gonna get the train from Staples and work my way up to Vancouver. So uh, maybe Vancouver Island as well, but looking for that perfect place. <laughs> uh, I'm and sure then, you'll find it. Yeah. Somewhere. All right, so where's the best place, Natasha, we can find information on you and purchase your books and learn more about you? Okay, so I have a website. I All my books are on Amazon, um, and my books are also on my um, Natty New Design Store because, I, I, because I'm artistic, I, I like to design clothing, bags, and all my books are on there. So Natty New Designs, look me up there. <laughs> I can send like, you a signed copy there. But um, yeah, Amazon, they're on Kindle or as paperback. 
All right. We appreciate it, Natasha. Thanks again for stopping by. That's okay. Lovely to see you. you. <laughs> All right. You're listening and Thank watching you. the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mike Velarde Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, good, Neil. How are you? Fantastic. Who's our guest today? Uh, Laura Diaz. He's running for sheriff in Palm Beach County, too. We're getting all the sheriff candidates on our show, Neil. How do you, what do you think about that? Oh, uh, okay. So I'm confused. I thought we we're going to have who we want to win. That's not happening. <laughs> hey, uh -oh. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give everyone an equal opportunity to appear on the show, just like, just like the federal regulations say we should. So, and Laurel's a good guy. He is. Okay. I know him from before. Laurel, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. So, Mike, I'm going to let you ask some bunch of the, the the political questions because he's in Palm Beach County. He has a lot of stories. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm going to. I'm going to go with just your stuff first. Go, Mike. <laughs> All right, Laura. I know this is your second time running. Um, against against Bradshaw, right? That's so right. we we got we got to ask you. You know, obviously, talk about your platform. Why 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 did you feel the need to? to come against Bradshaw, who used to be your boss at one point in time? Okay, well, th that's actually a very simple uh, answer, and thank you for that question. Uh, there's, regardless whether he was my boss at one time or another, he was the sheriff of Palm Beach County, he's still currently the sheriff of Palm Beach County. That doesn't take away from the fact that I don't believe the sheriff's office is conducting themselves, conducting business the way it should be conducted, and I don't think that we're being honest and transparent with the public. Uh, there's a lot of shortcomings uh, when it comes to public service, that we should be addressing that are not being addressed. And I'll give you a quick example. The budget itself is a budget that's out of control, right? It has yeah. never been, uh, no one has ever seen the budget. There's never been an external audit. Uh, there's no accountability. It's just whatever it is that the sheriff says. And what I bring forward is this. It's not my money, it's your money. It's the people who reside in Palm Beach County who pay their taxes. And therefore I have no reason whatsoever to keep anything hidden from anyone at any given time. So I pledge this to you. Uh, I will ask for an external audit and I will publish that audit. Whoever wants to take it and run with it, they're welcome to see it. There's nothing to hide. We've done everything right. We don't need to be keeping that from the public. That's one. Two is the way we're spending the money. There's a lot of waste at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. Um, and, and I know the previous candidate that you had there. I know some of the statements that he made, some of, about the social programs that he wants to bring back, and you're 100% on board. And for that matter, so am I. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue that we do not need a drug farm. It's hard to argue that we do not need... Uh, the Eagle Academy. Those are proven programs that work. Uh, there's plenty of money at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office if you stop for one minute, stop being reckless with your money. Well, let me, I, I know I had heard that I guess he got, you know, fancy Cadillacs for all the all the top echelon over there and and really, really takes care of the boys, so to speak, with, yes. with, tax, with taxpayer dollars. Yes. Which, you know, and, and I, now he's old. I mean, isn't he like almost 80? Is that he's, I don't know his exact age. He's way up there. Um, no, hardly anybody ever sees him anymore. He's, he's hardly ever seen by the troops. Uh, he doesn't attend that many programs anymore. Uh, so I really can't tell you. I can't speak to you about his health per se. But I can tell you that he's uh, been there almost 20 years now as a sheriff. Um, and it, it's time to move in a different direction. It's time to bring in new blood. And that's why I'm a firm believer that we should have term limits. What happens right. is when you're along in the same position you become complacent uh and you start making decisions based on what's best for you politically instead of what's best for the for the community no i agree i agree with you i think term limits are necessary i think what term limits do is it keeps the corruption or minimizes the corruption in politics um we certainly i mean that's why that's why they had term limits for the president because Correct. okay fdr was buying everybody with the new, new the new deal programs died in office 16 years and certainly George Washington, he didn't take a third term because he didn't want he didn't want he didn't want the presidency to be a, a kingship or a dictatorship. That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> and I am going to fight for that term limit. Uh, I, I really believe it's necessary. A lot of counties in the state of Florida have term limits. We're one of the few that does not. Uh, but that can be changed if we get the right movement behind us and go up to Tallahassee and, and lobby for it. I, I think it can be done. Now, what do, you, what do you think? Two terms, three terms, four terms. What what are you thinking? I believe like a president should be two terms. That's just my opinion. Right. I, first term is to get this corrected and get your, you know, your, your program uh, installed and see what, how it's working so that you can tune it. If you need to make changes uh, on your platform or whatever it is that you want to call it. So 
that needs to be done. And then the other four years to manage it to make sure it runs correctly. And then it's time for you to step aside and, and let somebody else take a shot at it. Maybe they'll come up with better ideas. You know, crime trends change. Everything changes. Our society changes. Our needs change. Communities change. So why aren't we changing? Well, that's because we're staying there too long. So Right. No, no, no. I, I agree with you 100%. Now, I know you ran against him, what, four years ago almost, right? It's, right, 2020? We, we, we lost your audio for a second. We did. We did very well. Uh, can you hear me? 